This is the very last message in our series in 1 Peter, and it's been such a wonderful journey uh, as we've gone all the way through from the very beginning, uh, looking at the beautiful privilege of being not home yet and seeing that the best is yet to come. And today we come to the end. Uh, Next week, we're going to actually kick off a new series called The Unmissable Church, based on the book this year by the senior minister up at uh, Northlight, Anthony Barraclough. Uh, It's going to be a wonderful series looking at the value of the church and why it's unmissable. So that's going to be taking us through for four weeks. Then after that, we're going to be doing an Advent series and lead up to Christmas before uh, we dig into a series over summer that we're calling... Uh, Truth on Fire, based on that wonderful book uh, by uh, Adam Ramsey. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. That's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, uh, before we ask the Lord to help us this morning. This, friends, is God's word to us this morning. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the beautiful gift of your word and this time we have spent in 1 Peter. Lord, as we come to the end of this beautiful journey, as we come to the end of this wonderful letter, as we come to the end of this beautiful book of Scripture, your words, Lord God, soften our hearts, open our eyes, help us to hear from you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, Aussie culture loves nothing more than when an underdog clinches victory. It loves nothing more. The unlikely hero battling against the odds, achieving the impossible, against all expectations, against all predictions, snatching victory. Uh, Sean's been cheering this morning for the Springboks, perhaps a classic example uh, last night. Uh, We've got Aussie national heroes like Stephen Bradbury, who made it to, by sheer chance, the 1,000-meter final of the speed skating at Salt Lake City in 2002, before the entire field crashed out and he cruised to victory. What a wonderful achievement. Uh, Teams making incredible comebacks, like the Panthers in the NRL Grand Final earlier this year. And yet, perhaps none could be greater than the example of just last year, the young Ned Brockman and his incredible run across Australia. Now, you may not be familiar with Ned, but Ned is a 23-year-old tradie from Forbes, and he aimed to run 100 kilometers a day over 40 days to cross the entirety of Australia, some 4,000 kilometers in 40 days. That was his goal. And he managed to do it despite the fact that it nearly killed him. 
he had massive injuries. He started, in fact, he later uh, admitted, with sore knees. He had to stop briefly for an MRI scan uh, for shin splints at one point. His feet were so badly damaged, he had maggots in his feet. Uh, he suffered from heat exhaustion, uh, running across the nullable, as you can imagine. Malnourishment, he's a little guy, he lost 11 kilos. The incredible pain between days that was so bad, his fat pads on his feet were so badly beaten, he could barely walk after finishing each day. And from holding his arms over the 4,000 kilometers like this to run, his arms were fixed at 90 degrees by the end of it. Uh, When he uh, got to the end and managed to break the record for running across Australia, doing it not in 40 days, but 46 days and 12 hours at 80 kilometers a day, uh, in the ABC interview, he said, I'm feeling great. I'm just excited to be finally home. Feeling pretty exhausted, obviously, as I would. Uh, Such an Aussie larrikin, Ned Brockman. Ned Brockman battled against the odds to complete his journey across Australia, driven by his desire to raise money for homelessness and the glory that waited for him back at home. In fact, during the run on his social media, uh, he coined the expression, get comfortable being uncomfortable. That was his motto. He knew the journey was going to be uncomfortable, but he knew that it would be worth it in the end. You see, Ned Brockman could keep going because he knew the best was yet to come. And in some ways, this image of this Aussie battler, Ned Brockman, the underdog against the odds, fighting to complete his journey, pushing through the pain to keep running home, is a picture of Peter's encouragement to these scattered churches in 1 Peter. They were scattered, they were misunderstood, they were maligned for their faith, they were facing trials of various kinds. Yet similarly, at the same time, they were chosen by God, called to be part of his people with a hope of life through Jesus' resurrection. Against the odds, the church likewise is called to continue to set its hope fully on that last day when Christ returns. You know, superficially, it wouldn't have looked like these churches were going to make it. Uh, They had opposition from every front. It would have seemed so unlikely. These were largely poor people. These were largely uneducated people. These were largely people from the wrong pedigree, unimpressive, opposed by Judaism, opposed by the empire, opposed by their neighbors, except the maker of the universe had promised that he would carry them through to the end. Uh, last week we saw in 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You Similarly, we too, as members of the church here in Sydney in the 21st century, we can feel like the battlers. We can feel like the underdogs. We can feel like the tide is turning, not for, but against the church. When evangelism seems to bear little fruit. When opposition seems to be increasing from multiple fronts. When we face the reality that national church attendance has been decreasing, not just for years, but for decades in this country. And when we consider that in the eyes of many, we are no longer the good guys, but the bad guys. And I started uh, this series with uh, this quote from Steve McAlpine in his book, 
being the bad guys that I think sums up uh, the situation we find ourselves in so well. He says this increasingly Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer held, uh, no longer an option, it's a problem. The cultural, political, and legal guns that Christianity once held are now trained on us. And it's happened quickly. The number of those professing faith has fallen dramatically. The number of those who reject the faith they once held until their late teens has risen dramatically. The seat at the cultural table that we assumed was ours for keeps is increasingly being given to others. We're on the wrong side of history. The wrong side of so many issues and conversations. If this were a Western, we would be the guys wearing the black hats whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. It's come as a surprise and we're not sure how it happened. We don't like it and we don't feel we deserve it, but we are the bad guys now. Couldn't be more well said. And yet despite our bad guy status... And the feeling that we are the underdogs of history with the world against us. We can run the race each day knowing the best is yet to come. We can run the race each day knowing the future is bright. We can go about our days and our life together with confidence, with eyes fixed on Jesus Christ raised from the dead. After taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, with the the tagline of the series, The Best is Yet to Come. And really, we're going to see three parting gifts that Peter wants to give us for the path ahead that he highlights as he closes his letter. Three gifts for us to consider, to bless us this morning for this race as we run like good old Aussie battler Ned Brockman to the finish. And really, at the same time, one message contained in this few verses, and that is an encouragement that we would end this series with hope that the best is yet to come. Let's dive right into the first point, the first gift that we're given in this text, and that is a picture of the rich family of God. Now, I wonder what the idea of family conjures up to you. You know, for most of us, I think when we think about family, uh, we probably first think of awkward meals we would rather escape from. Uh, Maybe for you, family conjures up uh, images of brokenness, of hurt, of pain, of loss, of difficulty. Maybe, Maybe for you, family is something that's a difficult thing to think about, lots of disappointment. You know, we're not a family based culture here. We tend to think of family in individualistic terms. Uh, we think of family as these people that I spent my early years with who I relate to more or less depending on how I feel or in the ways that I want according to my wishes. And yet in the majority of the world, family is a major part of how you view who you are. It's how you view your identity. It's how you view your purpose in life. And as a church of many cultures, many people in this room will identify with this. Uh, in making decisions about life and career, our first consideration is our family's wishes, if you're from a more family-based culture. What would most benefit? What would most love? What would most serve? What would most bring honor to my family? And this, I put to you, is somewhat more similar to the culture that the Bible was written to. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, uh, Moses writes the following, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
It's more than simply moving out of mum and dad's place and getting married. It's more than just adulting when we get married. It's actually, in the culture of the Bible, embracing a whole new identity. Joining yourself to your wife and her family as primary. Leaving your father and mother and clinging to yourself, your wife. It brings a whole new level of scandal to then what Jesus says when his mom and his brothers come looking for him in Matthew chapter 12. It says, But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciple, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. See, disciples of Jesus are invited to become part of his family. To become part of the very family of God. Rather than having an identity that is based on your own family, which would be most people, or a spouse's family for those that are married, you get a whole new identity again. Rather than living to serve the interests of our earthly family, we are now to live to serve the interests of God and our new heavenly family. See, our instinct when it comes to thinking about family is to think of how it affects us personally as individuals, to think about the awkwardness, the pain, the brokenness. And yet, when we talk about family in the Bible, we're talking about embracing a whole new identity and purpose in life, to love and serve God and his people. See, the gift of rich and intimate relationships, that's the gift of family that we see echoed in this passage. Read with me in verse 12 of our passage. He begins, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. The word brother, it's it's the word sibling. We're we're so used to this. It's a word we so commonly hear. We, We call each other this all the time and we completely miss its meaning. See, Silvanus or Silas was the appointed courier to carry this letter from Peter. And he was highly esteemed in the early church. In Acts chapter 15, verse 22, he's described as a leading man among the brothers and one who has risked his life for the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 15, verse 32, he's described as being prophetically gifted, using that gift to strengthen the brothers. In chapter 16, Luke notes that he is a Roman citizen and that Paul took him along for his second missionary journey and later paired him with Timothy, where they served together in Thessalonica. You see, Silas is something of a hero in the faith. He devoted himself completely to the cause of Christ and risked his life over and over and over again for Jesus. But he's also our brother, a part of our new extended family part of our new identity and purpose that we have as Christians. Many of us have probably even never heard of Silas before. Maybe this is the first time we're hearing of him, let alone realize what a valuable gift this brother was to the early church. And yet his fingerprints are all over the New Testament. And Silas joins the millions and millions of other faithful saints from throughout the ages that time has forgotten and yet a part of our family who we now are as Christians. But not just Silas. We read on, verse 13, Peter says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. It seems so random, doesn't it? Who is this woman? 
Why is she in Babylon? Uh, it's actually in the passage a metaphor. It's a symbol. He's using symbolic language. You see, Babylon at this point was a largely uninhabited city. It had long been completely destroyed according to the prophecies of uh, the Old Testament. It was uninhabited. So it's not referring to the actual literal Babylon. The key to understanding what Peter is talking about here is found at the very beginning of our letter in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He begins this whole letter by drawing on this theme of exile, Israel's exile in Babylon. Uh, He's referring to the way in which Israel was invaded by the Babylonian Empire in 586 BC. And over the next decade, there was this mass deportation of people to Babylon and the different provinces. And they had to learn to live as God's people in a place that wasn't their home. Uh, It's widely agreed then that what Peter is referring to here, just as Israel was deported to the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, that Peter is actually referring to the capital city of the Roman Empire. That Peter is, in fact, writing this letter from Rome. So she who is at Babylon is Peter's way of saying the church that is in Rome. The church in Rome is a part of the same family of God that Peter calls in 1 Peter 4.17, the household of God itself. These are Roman Christians. This is a church that is similarly filled with elect exiles living out their faith far from home who've been chosen by God to love and serve their city while at the same time not feeling at home in their place. And they send their greetings. There is a deep affection between these churches, even though they're so far away from one another. I'm just reflecting on this week as being part of our Sovereign Grace Church's family, how we feel exactly the same way. Uh, We even have a brother here visiting us this morning, Phil, from uh, one of the churches in Tennessee, in Knoxville. Uh, we are part of a church family. We think about brothers like Michael Ostinen in Dnipro, Ukraine, how we feel and carry with him the burden he feels as he loses people in his church and cares for the many refugees. We think about Diana Thomas and his heart to plant churches all throughout Liberia and how we carry him in our prayers and how we really felt for him and his family when he was recently diagnosed with cancer. We think about our Filipinos, the 17 Filipinos who are out here interning with us at the moment from his dwelling Christian church and CCSGM in Cavite in the Philippines and how we feel them, you know, so deep, so deep affection for them now. Even I love the way in which they've, you know, embraced Mama Pasolich as like their literal own mama while they're out here and, and follow her around everywhere. It's so beautiful that we are knit together as a family, as one together. And we see even more of this uh, in these last few verses again. Verse 13, he writes, And so does Mark, my son. You know, we, learn, we know quite a bit about the Apostle Peter from the New Testament. We know Peter was married, but we don't actually know whether he had physical children. We do know, however, that he had spiritual children. John Mark, the Mark referred to here, the author, in fact, of Mark's gospel. See, Mark was with the disciples in Jerusalem from very early on. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, you know that scene where Peter's miraculously freed from prison and the disciples are praying inside someone's house. Well, that house is the house of Mark's mom, Mary, it says in Acts 12, 12. 
Regardless of whether Peter had physical children, in God's family, Mark was his son. It's likely that Peter had, in fact, led Mark to faith and had raised him in the faith. And though Mark had some wobbles in his faith, like a big one, abandoning Paul and Barnabas, who was his cousin, on their first missionary journey, who was better positioned to care for for Mark than Peter himself, who had had his own very famous wobbles in the faith as well. And Mark, of course, had now been restored to the community and would go on to write Mark's gospel based on his father in the faith's memories of Christ. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of family. And again, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love, that is, with an affectionate kiss. You know, just like in the Mediterranean cultures, in many cultures, you'll see people greet one another with just a kiss on the cheek on either side. That's what we're talking about here. It's a sign of intimate friendship. It's what made Judas's betrayal of Jesus so brutal that he would use a sign of friendship to betray Jesus. Probably today it means give an affectionate hug, uh, give a cuddle, give an outward display of the inward reality that we are family. The Lord Jesus has joined us together into this rich and intimate family. You see, as we run this race like Ned Brockman, each day getting up to smash out 80 kilometers, the odds against us, the sun beating down us, our bodies aching. How beautiful to have the gift of family. You know, this week has actually been very, very difficult for multiple people in this community. Let me give you a picture of what's been happening to different people in our community just this week. We've had someone who had a mental health crisis just this week. We've had someone who had a family member diagnosed with Parkinson's disease just this week. We've had another family member who had a heart attack this week. We've had someone who was in emergency with COVID and the flu just this week. And we've had someone who lost a loved one in tragic circumstances just this week. There's many people who have been going through real challenges just this week in this community. What a gift then to face these challenges together as part of the rich family of God. But that's not just the only gift. Gift number one, the rich family of God. Gift number two, the true grace of God as well. You see, Peter is very clear in describing what the central concern of this whole letter has been. He writes in verse 12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is a summary statement of the whole message of 1 Peter. It's been about the true grace of God. And he's been exhorting, he's been encouraging and declaring, he's been testifying about the true grace of God. And the truth is that Peter has needed to testify to the true grace of God because there were and continue to be many, many false graces of God peddled to God's people. And the first is this. That true grace is not limited grace. The false gospel is that true grace is limited. And so true grace actually, in fact, he's wanted us to see, is not limited at all. See, many people believe that grace is somehow partial and it won't cover all of my sin. Uh, It could be the Roman Catholic idea that kind of grace is infused to us and that we 
cooperate with God in taking mass or in being baptized or in performing penitence or the rosary. That could be the sense in which we feel grace is limited. Or it could be that feeling that we often carry that the cross is simply not enough to pay for the wrongs that we have done. You know, recently I had someone confide in me a very significant sin that they uh, had committed and that they hadn't told anyone about and that they've been carrying with them for many, many years. And maybe that's you. Maybe you, you have some sort of hidden secret sin that you carry around. Or maybe it's the pileup of the everyday sins that tempts you to feel like, I shouldn't be gathering together with God's people. I, I, I don't belong here. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a good Christian. Or maybe it's that sense that you come after a bad week downcast, feeling like somehow you need to make up for your failings during the week. Well, Peter's been out to convince us that true grace is not limited grace. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You have returned to him. He has paid our sins in full on his body on the tree. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, the true grace of God, Peter is proclaiming, it's not limited. It is complete forgiveness of all our sins through Jesus Christ. The second way in which he's been declaring the true grace of God is to declare that it is, in fact, not cheap grace. True grace is not cheap grace at all. See, there's this idea that grace means it ultimately does not matter how you live your life. Uh, That Jesus died on the cross to purchase you a ticket to heaven. And so your ticket is paid for in full. And therefore that Jesus freely gives his grace and in doing so makes no demands upon your life at all. Therefore we can live freely in his grace and we can live out our lives in any way we choose. A Bonhoeffer Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German, German theologian, imagines cheap grace as being something that's sold at the markets, like a hawker's market or something like that, at bargain prices with minimal cost, and it's sold to everyone on no demand, no strings attached at all. He puts it this way in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It's this idea that grace means that the Christian life shouldn't cost us anything. And it couldn't be further from the teaching of Jesus and the Apostle Peter in this letter. Peter begins in chapter 1 verse 2 with this. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And notice the call to obedience and the perfect forgiveness at the same time. This is the true grace of God. We were saved to serve our Lord Jesus. We were called to be conformed to his image. We were chosen that we might choose to live for him and his glory and to love him with our all. In chapter 2, verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? 
an example so that you might follow in his steps. Again, in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You see, true grace is not cheap grace, because our salvation was not cheap. It cost the Lord Jesus his very life. And its purpose was to transform us from the inside out. To change us to share his heart of love for God and for others. See, true grace is freely given through repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus. But to trust the Lord Jesus is costly. Because he is our maker and he will rightly demand our all. Secondly, not just the this idea of true grace being cheap grace, and not just this idea of true grace being limited in some way, but thirdly, that true grace is not comfort or material prosperity. See, it's so easy to assume in our neighborhood that grace means that God will give me the same kind of life that my peers enjoy, that grace means an exciting and fulfilling career of my dreams. That grace means material wealth, a nice house, financial security, frequent holidays. That grace means to be applauded and held in esteem by our neighbors, family, and peers. That grace means physical health and freedom from pain and disease and a long life. But this is to confuse the living hope that we long for when Christ returns with our present calling in this broken world. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 13 Peter puts it this way. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like a soldier preparing for war or like an athlete preparing for a race, a Christian must soberly prepare for life in this world. A Christian calling is to firmly fix our gaze on the beautiful prize of eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Christian life in a broken world will involve profound suffering. In chapter 1, verse 6, he writes this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith tested by fiery trials. Chapter 3, verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil that we will be slandered for our faith according to God's will and like our Lord Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The fiery trial is not something strange that happens to us. It is a normal part of faithful obedience to the Lord Jesus. 
See, so often when we're in the middle of hardship, we find ourselves crying out for grace, saying, Lord, where are you? Lord, give me grace. And what we in fact mean is, Lord, this hurts. Lord, take this suffering away from me. Now, prayer to end suffering is an excellent prayer. But the Lord wants something more. I believe the Lord would say to us in these moments, I am pouring out my grace upon you. I am opening up heavens and flooding your life with grace upon grace upon grace. My precious child, I will pour upon you every drop of grace you need. But my goal is not your comfort. My goal is to transform you. My grace is always good, but my grace is not always pleasant. It is uncomfortable grace. And Paul Tripp, in his wonderful devotional book, New Morning Mercies, writes the following. He says, you are tempted to think that because you're God's child, your life should be easier, more predictable, and definitely more comfortable. But God has chosen to let you live in this fallen world because he plans to employ the difficulties of it to continue and complete his work in you. This means that these moments of difficulty are not an interruption of his plan or the failure of his plan, but rather an important part of his plan. I think there are times for many of us when we cry out for God's grace and we get it, but not the grace we're looking for. It comes in the form of something we would never have chosen if we were controlling the joystick. I am a far different man today thanks to those three gut-wrenching years in my first full-time pastorate. God used it as dynamite to raise my foolish pride. He used it as a hammer to smash 10,000 idols that warred over the throne of my heart. He reminded me that he is big and that I am small. It was awful. It was life-disrupting. It was jarring and painful in ways I may never fathom. But though I lacked the spectacles to see it then, it was also glorious. It was uncomfortable grace, and I am grateful for it. See, true grace is not comfort or material prosperity. It's becoming more like Jesus. Therefore, true grace is the strength to joyfully trust and obey God regardless of the cost, just like our Lord Jesus. It's to pray, not just, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but also, not my will, but yours be done. It's knowing that even suffering is a wonderful privilege in the way it makes us like Christ. It's knowing that hardships have good purposes and will not be worth comparing to what awaits us with Christ. And it's knowing that God will sustain us all the way until at last we are home. See, having outlined over the course of this letter what the true grace of God is, Peter says, how, how, how does he want us to respond to this? He says, Stand firm in it. You know, I imagine Ned Brockman might have had some wobbly moments in the lead up to his race as he considered the path before him, especially considering his knees were sore. Well, Peter is out to encourage these Christians. He's out to say, God is at work to make your life like Christ as you head towards eternity with him. Stand firm. 
Keep trusting and obeying. Don't be surprised. Keep looking to the prize and don't give up. And that's gift number two, the true grace of God. Lastly and finally, gift number three, the deep peace of God. And so finally, we come to the end of our series and the very last words of Peter. He says this, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter's words to these scattered, unimpressive, persecuted churches, it reminds me of one of the very last scenes in the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I know there's a few Lord of the Rings nerds out here. Uh, You'll appreciate this. The whole book or series of books is actually all about friendship. It's these unlikely friends who are bound together to defeat the powers of evil, epitomized in that uh, evil ring, that one ring to rule them all. And this scene is so powerful because it's the farewell between Frodo and his dear friends Gandalf, Merry Pippin, and of course Sam. Frodo has become so corrupted by the evil of the ring, he must depart Middle-earth forever. And Gandalf the wizard says the following... Well, here at last, dear friends, on the shores of the sea comes the end of our fellowship in Middle Earth. Go in peace. I will not say, do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. Then Frodo kissed Mary and Pippin, and last of all Sam, and went aboard. And the sails were drawn up, and the wind blew, and slowly the ship slipped away, down the long grey firth, and the light of the glass of Galadriel that Frodo bore glimmered and was lost. It's this beautiful scene, isn't it, of saying farewell to a friend. Gandalf sends them out and says, go in peace. Go in peace in the knowledge that evil has been defeated and that they had remained faithful friends to the very end. And yet it's a real scene of sadness in their last goodbye. Yet I put to us, this peace pales in comparison with the wonderful peace with which Peter brings our letter to a close. This is the peace our Lord Jesus has won through his victory upon the cross. The living hope through his resurrection, defeating death and once for all. This is the peace that comes from knowing that the Lord will return in glory and his glory will be revealed and he will dwell upon the earth forever. This is the peace of knowing that the kingdom of God has become to break forth as God rescues and transforms his people to be more like him. As it says in chapter 1 verse 23, we have been born again to a living hope. This is the peace that comes from a firm confidence that as we run this race, he will carry us to the very end. The God of all grace who will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And this is the peace that comes from a firm confidence that because of Christ, the best is yet to come. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this beautiful gift of 1 Peter. And as we close our time together in this wonderful series, help us to remember the wonderful gifts you have given us for our journey. 
Lord, help us to treasure the beautiful gift of a rich family all around us, Lord, that whatever we may be walking through, we know for sure we are not alone. We have Christ, but we also have his family ever-present to help. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the true grace of God that transforms us to be like Christ, that we can have a firm assurance that you'll be always with us, Lord God. And we thank you, finally, for the gift of your deep peace, Lord, that heaven and earth will one day be rejoined, that the Holy Spirit has joined us forever to Christ, that we are truly your children, and you will always be with us until you call us home. And we thank you for this word, Lord God. Help us to live by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.